We'll start out with the psalm, won't we? Let's see here. We've got psalm number five. Since that Paul read psalm number four, I'll do psalm number five. This is to the chief musician with flutes, a psalm of David. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my meditation. Give heed to the voice of my cry. My King and my God, for to you I will pray. My voice you shall hear in the morning, O Lord. In the morning I will direct it to you, and I will look up. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness, nor shall evil dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand in your sight. You hate all workers of iniquity. You shall destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and the deceitful man. But as for me, I will come into your house in the multitude of your mercy. In fear of you, I will worship toward your holy temple. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before my face, for there is no faithfulness in their mouth. Their inward part is destruction. Their throat is an open tomb. They flatter with their tongue. Pronounce them guilty, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Cast them out into the multitude of their transgressions, for they have rebelled against you. But let all those who rejoice, who put, let all those rejoice who put their trust in you. Let them ever shout for joy, because you defend them. Let those also who love your name be joyful in you. For you, O Lord, will bless the righteous with favor. You will surround him as with a shield. All right, well, I'm looking for our sermon text today, which is Exodus 29, verses 26 through 37. I'll tell the uh, people that uh, are new here is that our sermons have been out of Genesis and Exodus for the past five years, and we're about halfway through um, Exodus. We did go to Ruth, and we did that series in between Genesis and Exodus, but um, sometimes the sermons are a bit complicated, and if you're not really familiar with Scripture, you may be lost. Don't worry about that. The Bible will speak to you in its own way, even through an incompetent guy like me. And at the same time, uh, you will be learning how the Old Testament always points to Jesus Christ. Everything about it points to him and what he did. And you can't really understand what happened with Jesus unless you go back to the old and you see that. And one way of knowing that is that the book of Hebrews explains, today we're going to see this, many of the things that we're going to look at. It explains the rituals and the customs of the uh, priests of Israel. Well, there are a million other details that the book of Hebrews doesn't explain. And so as long as you understand the Old Testament, you'll have a much richer understanding of Jesus in the New, and plus we cite the New. So it's not like we're only in the Old Testament, we'll never get to the New Testament. We are in the New Testament every single week, week after week, but we're getting the foundation of what God has done by understanding the Old Testament. Okay, so having said that, Exodus 29, verses 26 through uh, 37, a little bit complicated today. Don't let it bother you. Um, uh, then you shall take the breast of the ram of Aaron's consecration and wave it as a wave offering before the Lord, and it shall be your portion. And from the ram of the consecration, you shall consecrate the breast of the wave offering, which is waved, and the thigh of the heave offering, which is raised, of that which is for Aaron and of that which is for his sons. It shall be from the children of Israel for Aaron and his sons by a statute forever, for it is a heave offering. It shall be a heave offering from the children of Israel from the sacrifices of their peace offerings, that is their heave offering to the Lord. And the holy garments of Aaron shall be his sons after him, 
to be anointed in them and to be consecrated in them. That son who becomes a priest in his place shall put them on for seven days when he enters the tabernacle of meeting to minister in the holy place. And you shall take the ram of the consecration and boil its flesh in the holy place. Then Aaron and his sons shall eat the flesh of the ram and the bread that is in the basket by the door of the tabernacle of meeting. They shall eat those things with which the atonement was made to consecrate and to sanctify them. But an outsider shall not eat them because they are holy. And if any of the flesh of the consecration offerings or of the bread remains until the morning, then you shall burn the remainder with fire. It shall not be eaten because it is holy. Thus you shall do to Aaron and his sons according to all that I have commanded you. Seven days you shall consecrate them, and you shall offer a bull every day as a sin offering for atonement. You shall cleanse the altar when you make atonement for it, and you shall anoint it to sanctify it. Verse 37, seven days you shall make atonement for the altar and sanctify it, and the altar shall be most holy. Whatever touches the altar must be holy. We go to the mechanic from time to time to get our car tuned up, don't we? Only a dummy would think, I sure am glad I'm getting this done because now I'll never have to come here again. No, rather we get a tune-up from time to time in order to keep our car running properly. If for no other reason than a funny clunking sound, we eventually have to go in for more work. Some of us have regular intervals that we go in. That way we stay ahead of the game. We are proactive in our mechanical needs. Some of us aren't so careful and it is that clunking sound that forces us back to the repair shop. No matter what, we know we will eventually have to go back there. In Israel, every time people came to the temple to sacrifice, it reminded them of their sin. It had to be so. They placed their hands on an animal and confessed their transgressions over it. After that, the animal's throat was cut and its blood was poured out. Even if they didn't believe that they deserved what that animal got, even if they didn't think of themselves as sinful, they were still reminded that the God who they had come to thought that they were. There could be no mistaking this as the thing twitched and writhed until it was emptied of its lifeblood. These sacrifices were there to remind them of this, and they were required often enough that they were to never forget it. Each year they would go to Jerusalem on the Day of Atonement. They would also make sacrifices at other times and for other reasons. Each time they made one, they could think, gee, I did this before. And here I am again. I guess I must need a spiritual tune-up. The best part about Jesus, if we actually believe his word, is that we have received a permanent tune-up, at least concerning the sin debt that we owe. Aaron and his sons are being consecrated in order to begin a priesthood that would require constant tune-ups for the people it served. This included them as well. But Christ has a priesthood far, far superior to that. This is our text first for today, which comes from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 16 and 17. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds. I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is a remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. It is a marvel and it is a wonder. Jesus Christ's sacrifice took care of the sin debt once and forever. It is, as he said with his dying words on the cross, finished. Now in Christ, there is remission of sin and there is no longer an offering for sin. We have full pardon, full redemption, and eternal salvation. As we continue with the consecration rites, which will be expected for Aaron and his sons, let us remember this. 
It's all to be found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again. And may God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. I have three thoughts for you today. The first is the wave and the heave offerings. This is verses 26 through 28. Verse 26, then you shall take the breast of the ram of Aaron's consecration and wave it as a wave offering before the Lord. The ram of the consecration, or literally the ram of the filling, which began to be detailed in verse 19 last week, continues to be described here. Its breast was to be taken and waved before the Lord as a wave offering. The term for breast, which is chaze, is used now for the first of 13 times. All 13 will be in Exodus through Numbers. It comes from chaza, which means to see, because it is the part that is most seen when looking at the front of the animal. This particular part of the animal has a special significance and was therefore to now be waved before the Lord. Verse 26 continues, and it shall be your portion. This breast, which has been waved, was to be given to Moses as his portion. Here is another new word brought in to the scriptures, which is translated as portion. It is the word mana. It's a noun from a verb, which means to appoint. Thus, it is an assigned portion. This word is used, for example, in the tender account of Elkanah and his beloved Hannah, which is found in 1 Samuel chapter 1. Here's what it says. And whenever the time came for Elkanah to make his offering, he would give portions, that word manah, to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion, a double manah, for he loved Hannah, although the Lord had closed her womb. The Lord now tells Moses that this breast was to be his. However, later, this same breast which is waved will belong to Aaron and his sons. This is recorded in Leviticus 7, verses 28 through 32. It says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, He who offers the sacrifice of his peace offering to the Lord shall bring his offering to the Lord from the sacrifice of his peace offering. His own hands shall bring the offerings made by fire to the Lord. The fat with the breast he shall bring, that the breast may be waved as a wave offering before the Lord. And the priest shall burn the fat on the altar, but the breast shall be Aaron and his sons. Also, the right thigh you shall give to the priest as a heave offering from the sacrifices of your peace offerings. As this is later to be the portion of the priestly line, then we are being shown two things right now in this verse. The first is that Moses is acting as the priest in order to establish the priesthood. He is receiving priestly wages for his work. The second is a logical deduction which can be made from this rite. It is that this is a fallible priesthood which was initiated by a fallible man in the consecration of other fallible men. If they are imperfect, then the law which they minister cannot perfect anyone. As this is so, then by necessity, it must be a temporary priesthood. And if a temporary priesthood, then the law to which they minister must also be temporary. The law which so many confused Christians return to in order to attempt to be pleasing to God is a law of imperfection. How good it would be for us to simply trust in the greater priesthood of Christ, which came through his perfect work. Here, even before the beginning of the Aaronic priesthood, we can learn so much if we will just open our ears, pay heed with our minds, and attend to what the rest of the Bible says about these things. Verse 27. And from the ram of the consecration, you shall consecrate the breast of the wave offering, which is waved, and the thigh of the heave offering, which is raised, of that which is for Aaron, and of that which is for his sons. There are two actions which can occur with an offering. 
One is to wave it. A wave offering is moved backwards and forwards and horizontally. This signifies the four directions, which are north, south, east, and west. This was done with the breast here. In this type of offering, a picture of the cross is formed. You've got a cross. It's being made every time they made one of these in Israel. A heave offering is an offering which is lifted upwards in a single motion. This is what occurred with the thigh. And this is a picture of Christ on the cross. The same word, rum, that is used to describe this offering is used to describe the work of Christ in Isaiah 52 with these words. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted, rum, and extolled and be very high. As you can see, each has its own significance and each pointed to the work of Jesus Christ. Every offering of this type for generation after generation was simply a foreshadowing of the coming work of the Lord. Of this verse and the next verse, the liberal dolts at Cambridge state the following, and I'm calling them that because they call into question the word of God. Here's what they say, very liberal scholars. And this is why I always say be very careful reading commentaries is because you don't know when you're getting an end around by people that have not done their due diligence. Here's what they say. The verses that we're looking at, which do not agree with verse 22 and 24 for the thigh, which was there burnt on the altar, is here to be the prerequisite of the priests, are probably a later insertion correcting verse 26 and harmonizing, though imperfectly, verses 22 and 25 with the practice that was usual in the case of a peace offering, namely for the priest to receive both the breast and the right thigh. That was the dolts at Cambridge. In other words, these liberal scholars see this verse as being in error and inserted afterwards in order to harmonize the instructions with that which would later occur with all such offerings. Verses 22 and 24 show that the right thigh was to be burned on the altar as a sweet aroma to the Lord. In not understanding the intent of this verse, they make the immediate assumption that it is an error because it now says that the right thigh was to be given to Aaron and his sons. If it was to be burned on the altar, then how could it be given to Aaron and his sons? But they are incorrect in their analysis. If one refers to the actual ordination of Aaron and his sons in Leviticus chapter 8, it is evident that the burning of the thigh of the consecration is exactly what does occur. Here's what it says. And Moses sprinkled the blood all around on the altar. Then he took the fat and the fat tail, all the fat that was on the entrails, the fatty lobe attached to the liver, the two kidneys and their fat and the right thigh. And from the basket of unleavened bread that was before the Lord, he took one unleavened cake, a cake of bread anointed with oil and one wafer and put them on the fat on the right thigh. And he put all these in Aaron's hand and his son's hands and he waved them as a wave offering before the Lord. Then Moses took them from the hands, their hands and burned them on the altar, on the burnt offering. They were consecration offerings for a sweet aroma. There's no contradiction in this verse in verses 22 and 24. Rather, there is a short digression to explain that from the time after the consecration, the right thigh was to belong to Aaron and his sons. However, for the ordination itself, this was not given to them. Instead, it was offered to the Lord on their behalf. Why? They weren't yet ordained. Therefore, they were not yet given the rights of ordained priests. Rather than being cumbersome, contradictory, or confused, it is a logical time to show that the ordination was the exception to the rule of the right thigh. The dolts at Cambridge get no credit for their analysis. Instead, they get shameful demerits for not thinking the verse through, 
for not checking the passage which concerns the actual ordination, and for attempting to appear smart when they have actually made themselves look doltish and uneducated by trying to find fault in God's word. You will not find it in this word ever. And I don't mean to be condescending to these people, but I take offense at people that call themselves scholars when they say something like this and they do it constantly, trying to belittle the word of God. They spent their whole life studying to be scholars of the Bible and all they do is try to tear it down. Stay away from commentaries as much as possible. Verse 28, it shall be from the children of Israel for Aaron and his sons by a statute forever. The rights of the offerings were to be lehak olam or by statute forever. This is not to be taken in the ultimate sense that we think of when we use the word forever, though. Rather, this word, olam, gives the sense of to the vanishing point. In the context of the Aaronic priesthood, it would last until the coming of the Messiah who would fulfill these types and pictures of the Old Covenant. At that time, the law would pass away, being superseded by that which the law only anticipated. Until that time, though, the giving of the breast and the thigh to Aaron was to be a permanent statute. And there is a reason for this. Verse 28 continues. It is a heave offering. It shall be a heave offering from the children of Israel from the sacrifices of their peace offerings. That is their heave offering to the Lord. The breast of the wave offering was to be given to Aaron and his sons because Aaron bore the breastplate of judgment upon his breast for the sons of Israel. The right thigh was to be given to them because he bore the memorial stones on his shoulders for them as well. A picture is being made of his responsibilities in the parts of the animal. As he carried out the responsibility and the burden of them upon himself, these offerings were to be given in kind to him. The contrast between this offering and the burnt offering of verses 15 through 18 is summed up very well by the scholar Benson. He says, in the burnt offering, God had the glory of their priesthood. In this, they had the comfort of it. In other words, God is glorified through the first offering. They are comforted through the same offering coming later, their portion of it. The meaty and wholesome parts of the animal were given to Aaron and his sons as a comforting aspect of their high responsibilities before the Lord. An offering waved to my God, to the four corners of the earth I offer it, in hopes that through acceptance together we will trod, and so to him this offering I submit. An offering lifted high to my God, I raised it up and petitioned him for my life, in hopes that through acceptance together we will trod, and that between us will end our state of strife. An offering raised up to my God above, an offering lifted up to him on high, on behalf of the people that I love, I will be raised on Calvary's cross, there to die. Our second thought today is imputed holiness. It's verses 29 through 34. Verse 29, and the holy garments of Aaron shall be his sons after him. Verses 29 and 30 are now a new digression, but by no means an illogical or misplaced one. Verse 31 in thought follows logically after verse 28. But at some point, the matter of the garments of Aaron, which were made specifically for the office of the high priest, must be addressed. What will happen to those garments when he dies? The answer is found in these two verses. The logic of placing these verses here is evident. The ram of the ordination or the ram of the filling is that by which the office is filled. Therefore, to mention this now concerning the garments for the office which is held is appropriate and it is precise. In this is another hint of the temporary nature of the law. Noting that the garments of Aaron were to pass down to his sons after him shows that he would, in fact, die. Thus, nothing is made perfect through the Aaronic priesthood. If Aaron is the representative of the law before the Lord, and if he is to die, then it implies that his sinful state remained. 
Further, if the designated representative before the Lord died, then those on whose behalf he ministered for were also not perfected. This is explained in Hebrews chapter 10. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never, with these same sacrifices which they offer continually, year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then, would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins, year, every year, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. However, at the time of the establishment of the priesthood, these things were not expected to be thought through. Only now as we look at the whole counsel of God can we clearly see the temporary nature of the law and the limitations that went along with the associated offices and rites which are connected to it. Only in Jesus Christ is that which is perfect and eternal realized. As far as passing on the garments from Aaron to his sons in this transfer, it's found in Numbers chapter 20, verses 24 through 28, which I want to read to you. Aaron shall be gathered to his people. This is when Aaron is going to die. For he shall not enter the land which I have given to the children of Israel, because you rebelled against my word at the water of Meribah. Take Aaron and his son, Eleazar his son, and bring them up to Mount Hor, and strip Aaron of his garments, and put them on Eleazar his son, for Aaron shall be gathered to his people and die there. So Moses did, just as the Lord commanded, and they went up to Mount Hor in the sight of all of the congregation. Moses stripped Aaron of his garments and put them on Eleazar his son, and Aaron died there on the top of the mountain. Then Moses and Eleazar came down from the mountain. This is the only time that the transfer of these garments is noted in Scripture, but it would have been the regular custom at the death of each high priest. As long as the garments lasted, they were to be passed on. We can only assume that as they wore out, new ones were made to replace them, but those were passed on from generation to generation. Verse 29 continues, to be anointed in them and to be consecrated in them. The Hebrew is more expressive than the English here. It says, <coughs> le mascha bahem ule male bam et yadam. Only Young's literal translation of the Bible out of 20 that I checked gives a proper literal translation of what it says. It says to be anointed in them and to consecrate in them their hand. To consecrate them in their hand goes back to the idea of filling the hand for the duties of the job. The hand of the man performs the tasks of the job. And so to fill their hand in the rite of consecration then makes the work of their hands acceptable to the Lord. Thus, whoever was to perform the priestly duties was to be properly anointed and consecrated for the office. Verse 30, that son who becomes priest in his place shall put them on for seven days when he enters the tabernacle of meeting to minister in the holy place. Again, as has been noted elsewhere, it is not the tabernacle of meeting. If you've got that in your Bible, it's not correct. It is the tent of meeting. The word ohel signifies a tent. Aaron would be the first priest to be so ordained. This is actually recorded in Leviticus chapter 8 with these words. And you shall not go outside the door of the tabernacle of meeting for seven days until the days of your consecration are ended. For seven days he shall consecrate you as he has done this day so the Lord has commanded to do to make atonement for you. Therefore, you shall stay at the door of the tabernacle of meeting day and night for seven days and keep the charge of the Lord so that you may not die. For so I have been commanded. So Aaron and his sons did all the things that the Lord had commanded by the hand of Moses. The number seven, as has already been seen numerous times, is the number of perfection. It corresponds to countless occurrences in scripture. 
why seven days is chosen for this rite of ordination then should be explained. Seven represents spiritual perfection. Looking at the different ways to arrive at the number seven, we can see several important truths. The first is one plus six. As a cardinal number, one denotes unity. As an ordinal number, it denotes primacy. Six is the number of man. Thus, the ordination of Aaron shows the unity of the office and the primacy of the man in relation to all others in Israel. The second is two plus five. Two is the number of difference or division. Five is the number of grace. In this, then, there is the idea that the office of the high priest is a distinct office through which grace is offered. And the third is three plus four. Three is the number of divine perfection, that which is real, solid, substantial, and complete. Four is the number of creation. In this, then, we see the uniting of body and soul. These seven days set aside for the ordination follow logically and perfectly with each formation of the number. Aaron is being prepared to be the sole man to assume the high priestly role. He is the set-apart man through whom the grace of God is transmitted to his people, and he is the man who is being prepared both physically and spiritually for the accomplishment of the tasks which are set before him. However, this ordination is only a shadow of the true ordination which Christ as our eternal high priest literally fulfills and what Aaron only pictures. This seven-day period is only given as a prefiguring of the greater high priest to come. Verse 31, and you shall take the ram of the consecration and boil its flesh in the holy place. The rest of the animal, which was not burned on the altar or given to Moses as the officiating priest was to be then taken and boiled, as it says, in the holy place. However, this will be further defined in Leviticus 8 to not be specifically in the holy place, but at its door. Here's what it says. And Moses said to Aaron and his sons, boil the flesh at the door of the tabernacle of meeting and eat it there with the bread that is in the basket of consecration offerings. So you got to be careful when you're reading because translators are doing their best to translate something into English. And sometimes they insert a word or a preposition or something which really doesn't get the intent of what we need. You got to go to another passage to actually figure out what's going on. Verse 32, then Aaron and his sons shall eat the flesh of the ram and the bread that is in the basket by the door of the tabernacle of meeting. In verses 23 through 25, one of each of the three types of bread were taken from the basket and they were presented to the Lord as a part of the burnt offering. That which remained along with the flesh of the ram was to be eaten by the door of the tent of meeting. If you remember, each of those types of bread individually pictured Jesus Christ. The ram has also pictured Christ. Thus, this meal is symbolically a partaking of his body. As he said in the book of John, my flesh is food indeed. And elsewhere in the same book, I am the bread of life. So you can see he's being pictured even in this ordination, the eating of the animal and of the bread. The sharing of it between the Lord and Aaron and his sons is intended to solidify the bond between them. Christ being he who unites the heavenly and the earthly as one. All during the week of ordination, they were being spiritually prepared for their lifelong duties as priests to the Lord, as is next made explicit. Verse 33, they shall eat those things with which atonement was made and to consecrate and to sanctify them. The purpose of the food is to consecrate and sanctify them. But how is this possible? It is because these things were that which atonement was made. This is really the very first time that this word, kafar, or atonement, is used in the Bible in this sense. It's only been used twice so far. 
The first was when Noah covered, he kafard the ark with pitch in Genesis 6, 14. All right, the second time is when Jacob set about to appease or to cover, to kafar the anger of his brother Esau with a gift in Genesis 32, verse 20. Now it is used for the third time indicating the covering or atonement of the sins of Aaron and his sons. This covering or atonement is simply a combination of the words at one meant. In other words, the intent of atonement is to reconcile through the covering. Peace and harmony is restored. In the case of Aaron and his sons, the need for atonement actually highlights their failings. They needed a sacrifice for themselves. In this foreshadowing of Christ, we see how he, Jesus, far excelled the Aaronic priesthood. He had no sins of his own. The sacrifices of Aaron were first for himself and only then for the sins of others. However, the atonement of Christ's sacrifice was exclusively for the sins of others. God, in his grace and mercy, accepted the temporary covering of the death of animals until the time when he would send his son Jesus to be the final permanent sacrifice for the sins of those he would redeem. Verse 33 continues, But an outsider shall not eat them, because they are holy. The outsider, or zur, is introduced into the Bible here. In this context, it means anyone who is not of the ordained priestly line of Aaron. Not even a regular Levite could eat of it. This word comes from a primitive root, which means to turn aside, as if you're going to go into lodging. And so it speaks of a stranger or a foreigner. It is someone who is not a part of what is going on in the usual dealings of a place or matter. Because the food was considered holy, only someone who was consecrated as holy was to partake of it. Verse 34, And if any of the flesh of the consecration offerings or of the bread remains until the morning, then you shall burn the remainder with fire. It shall not be eaten because it is holy. This is a direct command which is very similar to that of the Passover sacrifice. Concerning that sacrifice in Exodus chapter 12, it said this, You shall let none of it remain until morning, and what remains of it until morning you shall burn with fire. The consecration offerings, like the Passover, were not to be eaten on the second day. Instead, they were to be burned with fire. The reason for this is specifically given, because it is holy. The holiness of God is what is to be impressed upon their minds. Food which had gone throughout the night was susceptible to corruption. This would be unacceptable to consume when considering God's holy and incorruptible nature. Further, it was exclusively to be eaten by the priests. If not, it was to be returned to God by fire and not passed on to another. If another ate of it, it would diminish the entire ordination process because they were not so ordained. It would be, in essence, mixing the holy with the profane, like we saw in our prophecy update today, with the Muslims worshiping with Christians. You're not ever to merge the holy with the profane. And finally, if something which was devoted to a sacred use was given to someone else, they could then use it as an object of superstitious worship of some sort. Maybe they have the uh, one of the uh, bones of the ram and they use it as a talisman. Like the Passover, which pictured Christ so well, no such thing was to happen in the holy food of the consecration, which also pictures him in every single detail. The offering shall be pure and undefiled, and it shall not be allowed to become corrupt. Upon you with my grace I have smiled. Therefore let nothing our fellowship interrupt. The offering shall be pure, not stained with sin. It shall be holy as I am also holy. Only through holiness can you the victory win. This is how it is and how it shall be. The offering is pure and undefiled. It is pure and not stained with sin. 
upon my people through Jesus, I have smiled for them and through his holiness, the victory he did win. Our third offering or our third thought today is a holy offering to the Lord. It's verses 35 through 37. Verse 35, thus you shall do to Aaron and his sons according to all that I have commanded you. Seven days you shall consecrate them. What this verse is telling us is that this ceremony was to be conducted not just on the first day, but on each day for seven days. This means that no matter what day the rite started on, it would include at least one Sabbath. And yet there was no guilt to be imputed for having conducted the priestly affairs on the Sabbath day. This is spoken of by Jesus in Matthew 12, verse 5, where the priests are said to profane the Sabbath and yet remain blameless. This is just the first of such recorded instances in Scripture. The priestly functions were to progress on without regard to a Sabbath. Again, it is showing us a distinction between the holy and the profane. If a priest were not on duty, then they'd be required to observe the Sabbath. But if they were on duty, they would not be so required. Further, if they were called to duty on the Sabbath, they would also be held guiltless. And this is seen in the record of the fateful end of the wicked queen, Ataliah. I kind of think of uh, Hillary Clinton when I read this, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and read you this passage. This is what you shall do. This is the priest speaking. One third of you entering on the Sabbath of the priests and the Levites shall be keeping watch over the doors. One third shall be at the king's house and one third at the gate of the foundation. All the people shall be in the courts of the house of the Lord, but let no one come into the house of the Lord except the priests and those of the Levites who serve. They may go in for they are holy, but all the people shall keep the watch of the Lord and the Levites shall surround the king on all sides. Let every man with his weapons in his hand and whoever comes into the house, let him be put to death. You are to be with the king when he comes in and when he goes out. So the Levites and all Judah did according to all that Jehoiada, the priest commanded and each man took him uh, took his men who were to be on duty on the Sabbath with those who were going off duty on the Sabbath. For Jehoiada the priest had not dismissed the divisions. Later on in the passage, it says that Athaliah cried out, treason, treason. They said, take her and execute her out in the courts outside of this place. And they did. Verse 36, and you shall offer a bull every day as a sin offering for atonement. Each of the seven days of the ordination, a bull was to be sacrificed as a sin offering for atonement. This looked forward to the full and complete atonement for sin by the sacrifice of Christ. This again takes us back to the number seven and its derivatives. As I noted, and as just one example, three plus four is seven. Three is the number of divine perfection, that which is solid, real, substantial, and complete. Four is the number of creation. In this, then, we see the uniting of body and soul. As I said, every one of the pictures of the number seven fits perfectly with the biblical model. The bull pictures Christ, the high priest. The blood pictures his blood covering or atoning for our sin. And so the seven pictures him as the God-man who is wholly capable of accomplishing this atonement. He was not just an offering for sin, though. He was made to be sin, that we, by imputation of his righteousness, might become the righteousness of God in him. This is all pictured in these verses, which are so quickly passed over by most who dare to read them even one time. Verse 36 continues, you shall cleanse the altar when you make atonement for it, and you shall anoint it to sanctify it. The cleansing of the altar here shows us a rather important truth, which is found in the Bible. Sin is considered in a much wider sense than we tend to think of it. The biblical aspect of sin is that it can even infect a material object. That which is unholy is defiled, and defilement is sin. 
This is seen explicitly in the uh, book of Haggai chapter 2. Here's what it says. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Now ask the priest concerning the law, saying, If one carries holy meat in the fold of his garment, and with the edge he touches bread or stew, wine or oil or any food, will it become holy? Then the priest answered and said, No. And Haggai said, If one who is unclean because of a dead body touches any of these, will it become unclean? So the priest answered and said, It shall be unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, So it is with this people, and so it is with this nation before me, says the Lord. And so is every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. In order to consecrate the altar, he had to make atonement for the sin of the altar. But where did that sin come from? It came from the sinful men who erected it, and further, the materials used in it are a part of the fallen creation. Therefore, at least symbolically, it had to be made acceptable so that the gifts that are laid upon it would also be acceptable. John Lang, however, asks an obvious question concerning the state of the priests who would minister at it and their own sinful state. Now, remember, the priests have to sacrifice for their own sins before they sacrifice for the sins of the people, and they have to do this year after year after year, okay? They have sin in them then, right? Did that sin of theirs transfer to the altar? Here's what John Lang asks. But as yet, there can be no reference to this source of impurity. For in that case, how could the priests ever make atonement for the altar? Well, it's a good question, but the fact that the high priest had to continue to sacrifice for his own sins year by year on the Day of Atonement showed that he was still a man with sin. The atonement for the altar was not made by sinless priests at all, and yet the altar was to be considered acceptable for use. Hence, once again, we see that the service of these men under the law, and thus under the law itself, was to be only a temporary stepping stone in God's greater redemptive workings. The law could save none, nor could it truly bring in a state of sinless perfection to man. In the sanctification of the altar, it was set apart for sacred use. It was also deemed as holy so that the gifts offered upon it would be holy. This is seen from Jesus in Matthew 23, where he says this, Fools and blind, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift? Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and by all things on it. However, in Christ, the true altar, we read that he sanctified himself so that our lives as gifts to God might be acceptable to him. This is seen in John chapter 17. As you sent me into the world, this is his high priestly prayer to God the Father on the night before he was crucified. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they may also be sanctified by the truth. He has no sin, so he sanctified himself. Therefore, when we pray to God, our offerings to him are considered as holy. Verse 37, seven days you shall make atonement for the altar and sanctify it. This is now the third time that an interval of seven days is mandated. The first was in verse 30 concerning the consecration of the son to replace Aaron. The second was in verse 35 concerning the consecration of Aaron and his sons. And now we have this time concerning the atonement and the sanctification of the altar. Once the period of seven days with its associated rites was complete, then the altar would be ready for service as is seen next. Verse 37 going on, and the altar shall be most holy. Literally, it says, Has Mizbeach Kadosh Kadashim, an altar 
holiness of holinesses. From that time forward, the altar would be considered acceptable for the offering of the gifts of the people to the Lord. Because of its most holy status, the result is the final words of our verses today. Verse 37 finishes with, whatever touches the altar, excuse me, must be holy. Scholars disagree on what is meant here. The Hebrew reads a certain way, and it can be translated one of two ways. Ellicott and those in agreement with him say that it should read, just as I just read you by the New King James Version, whatever touches the altar must be holy. He says, nothing which is not holy must touch it. The future has the force of an imperative as in the Ten Commandments. However, other scholars disagree and say that it should read as the Jubilee Bible translates this verse, whatever touches the altar shall be made holy. Their stand is that this may be understood as implying that whatever was laid on the altar became the Lord's property and must be wholly devoted to sacred uses, for in no other sense could such things be sanctified by touching the altar. That was Adam Clark's analysis. Adam Clark is correct. The altar was once and for all sanctified as holy, so that whatever was offered upon it would become holy. Further, that which was unholy and which touched it became set apart as devoted to the Lord. This is seen in the account of Joab going into the altar to seek mercy in 1 Kings chapter 2. He was not holy when he went in there, but he grabbed the horns of the altar asking for mercy. But his fate was devoted to the Lord through the word of Solomon. So why is this important? The answer is that the altar pictures Christ. Our offerings to God are made holy through him. They are not holy in and of themselves, nor can our touching him in a defiled state make him impure. This is seen in the account of the woman with the flow of blood from Luke chapter 8. Here's what it says there. Now a woman having a flow of blood for 12 years who had spent all of her livelihood on physicians could not be healed by any, came from behind and touched the border of his garment and immediately her flow of blood stopped. Under the law, he would be made uh, unclean by her doing that. But because he's the true altar, he's not made unclean. And Jesus said, who touched me? When all denied it, Peter and those with him said, Master, the multitudes throng impress you, and you say, Who touched me? But Jesus said, Somebody touched me, for I perceived power going out from me. Now when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling, and falling down before him, she declared to him in the presence of all the people the reason she had touched him and how she was healed immediately. And he said to her daughter, Be of good cheer. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. As with all things in the Bible, which may seem obvious on the surface, or misinterpreted by a very good scholar like Charles Ellicott, the truth is, more often than not, there is more to what is going on than meets the eye. Christ was not defiled by the unclean woman, and yet she, meaning her offering of faith, was deemed holy by God and accepted because she had offered upon the true altar Christ. These verses, some of which seem so immensely different from the religion that you and I spouse in knowing Christ, are actually intricately tied up in who he is and what he has done and still does for us. The law had to come, and these rites and rituals needed to be given first before we could realize our need for that which is greater. The temporary atonement of a bull or a ram being graciously offered by God could never truly perform the function that it was given for. It could only temporarily stay off his wrath and provide us with grace and mercy. The law was necessary, but thank God that the law is now fulfilled and it is set aside. In Christ, we have the fullness of what was actually lacking in the law. 
We have peace with God. We have atonement for our sins. And we have full redemption as sons of God, all by mere faith in his marvelous provision. Let us never forget this as we read these sometimes very difficult passages. What we have here, what they pictured, we actually have in Jesus Christ. Sweet Jesus. If you've never received this precious gift of God, meaning Jesus Christ, I would ask you to do so today. I'll give you just a couple verses to think on if you've never made that commitment to him. The Bible says that all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. The Bible shows us that explicitly a million times, and it says it implicitly a billion more. But King David writing in the psalm says that I was conceived in sin. Surely I was sinful from my mother's womb. We inherit sin from our father. That's the state we're in. That's the problem that we have, and that is what exists, exists in us. We are living a life of death. We're dead in our sins, and we're going to go off and die. We're living death to death. And the Bible says the wages of sin is death. We get what we earn. We go to work. We get our pay. That's our wages for what we've done. We have sinned in our life, and we receive our wages, and that is death. There's two types of death that are being referred to in the Bible. The first is that spiritual death. Adam sinned, he received the wages of that, and he was cut off from the presence of God, and he was separated from God because of that. And that sin is inherited by all of us. But then we get more sin in our life. We start doing bad things, and we earn wages for death. We're corruptible, and we are going to go to a place of corruption because of that. But the Bible goes on and says, but, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We were born in sin. We've earned the wages of that sin. But God in his mercy sent Jesus Christ, the true altar, the true ram, the true bull, the true high priest, every single thing, the true bread, all of it, every single detail of what we look at week after week after week is getting us to say there's something else that's coming that is not based on imperfection like Moses and Aaron, but based on perfection. God himself came out of the eternal realm and he united with humanity. The sin was cut because there was no father to transfer the sin into Mary. And so he is the God-man, born without sin, born under this law. He was born under the law, he lived under the law, and he lived without sin under the law. He never broke one of his father's precepts, and so he was qualified now to take over in the place of our fallen father, Adam. And he did. He gave his life up on the cross. And as I said earlier, his last words on the cross, it is finished. The word in Greek is tetelestai, or teleo is the root of it. It means paid in full. If you had something that you bought, you go down to Walmart and you start putting money on something, you take the receipt, and every time you put a little money on it, eventually they're going to say paid in full, and you get to carry that thing out the door. The debt of the law is paid in full through the body and the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And so God would ask you to say, I believe that. I believe that I have sin in my life and that only Christ can take it away. And if you believe... If you simply believe that, that God sent his son to die for you and to take away your sin debt and to raise you to, he was raised to eternal life because he had no sin of his own. God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. That's what God asks of you. And he too will bring you back to eternal life and you will stand in the presence of this beautiful lamb of God for all eternity, praising his name, walking on streets of gold and enjoying every benefit that heaven offers. But without it, there's only eternal separation from God. It's called the lake of fire. And as I said during the Prophecy Update, people are building their own diving boards to get in there, and I don't understand it. I don't understand it when this is a gift that God 
gives us, and everybody's just working to do anything but accept the simplicity of Jesus Christ. Call on him today. I got a closing verse for you today from Hebrews chapter 10. Three times we've been in Hebrews 10 today. This is verses 11 through 14. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, meaning Jesus, after he'd offer, offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. There's no seat in the altar or in the tabernacle. If you go through all of that furniture over there, you'll see no, no seat. They were always working. As long as they were in there, they were on their feet and they were working. But it says Jesus Christ sat down. The work is finished. He didn't need to stand up anymore. From that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. Praise God, that's coming soon to a tribulation period near you. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. If you've called on Jesus Christ, if you've asked him to forgive you of your sins, you are forever, forever perfected. Next week is Exodus 29, verses 38 through 46. Wonderful words through which we will trod. It's entitled, I will dwell among them and be their God. That'll be our 82nd Exodus sermon. As I say each week, the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. If you're here today, it's not by accident. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if a deep ocean lies ahead of you, he can part the waters and he can lead you through it on dry ground. So follow him and trust him and he'll do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? All right. One thing I do that a couple of you aren't aware of is every week after we go through the sermon, I take all of the verses of that sermon and I make them into a poem. So we got an Exodus, I'm sorry, Genesis poem and we've got a Ruth poem. And uh, now we'll have an Exodus poem in another, I think, four or five years we'll be done. Um, this is called The Consecration of Aaron and His Sons. And if you follow along in your Bible, if you have the New King James Version, it's very close. Then you shall take the breast of the ram of Aaron's consecration and wave it as a wave offering before the Lord per his behest, and it shall be your portion. And from the ram of the consecration, you shall consecrate the breast of the wave offering which is waved and the thigh of the heave offering which is raised, it is the best, of that which is for Aaron, as I tell you, and of that which is for his sons too. It shall be from the children of Israel, for Aaron and his sons by a statute forever, so to you I tell. For it is a heave offering, it shall be a heave offering from the children of Israel, hear my word, from the sacrifices of their peace offerings, that is, their heave offering to the Lord. And the holy garments of Aaron shall be his sons after him, so you shall do, to be anointed in them and to be consecrated in them too. That son who becomes priest in his place shall for seven days put them on when he enters the tabernacle of meeting to minister in the holy place, these he shall don. And the ram of the consecration you shall take and boil its flesh in the holy place, a boiling of its flesh you shall make. Then Aaron and his sons shall, the flesh of the ram they shall be eating and the bread that is in the basket by the door of the tabernacle of meeting. They shall eat those things with which the atonement was made, so shall it be, to consecrate and to sanctify them. But an outsider shall not eat of them, because they are holy. And if any of the flesh of the consecration offerings or of the bread remains until the morning, do hear me, then you shall burn the remainder with fire. It shall not be eaten, because it is holy. Thus you shall do to Aaron and his sons, according to all that I have commanded you to do. Seven days you shall consecrate them, according to all that I instruct to you. And you shall offer every day a bull as a sin offering for atonement. Yes, each day you shall cleanse the altar when you make atonement for it, and you shall anoint it to sanctify it, as to you I say. Seven days you shall make atonement for the altar and sanctify it according to these words from me. 
and the altar shall be holy. Whatever touches the altar must be holy. Lord God Almighty, we thank you for what you have done. You have made us a kingdom of priests to you. And it is only because of the work of your son. It is only because of what he alone did do. And so we thank you and we give you praise. Yes, Lord God Almighty, we shall do so even until eternal days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for these wonderful pictures of Christ. And we thank you that we can come up and we can place our hand on him, defiled by sin, knowing that we are unworthy of even coming into your presence. But by placing our hands on him, nothing is transferred to him. And yet we are washed as clean as, as wool itself, whiter than wool, purer than snow because of Jesus. And then he can take his other hand and he can put it up to you and say, this one is acceptable because of what I did. And I offer through myself to you his offering. And it's acceptable to you, oh God. How can it be? How can it be? But you have sent Jesus to do this for us. And you are so glorious. You are so marvelous. You are perfect in all of your ways. We thank you for that. We thank you for it. We give you our hearts. We give you our souls. We give you our praise. And we do so in his beautiful name. Amen. All right, we get the uh, instructions for the Lord's Supper directly out of the Bible. It comes from Paul's hand in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And uh, he wrote what we need to know for this weekly observance. He said, therefore, I received from the Lord, which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And he would have given thanks over it. He would have said these words, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu, Melech haolam hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And he broke it. And he said, take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he took the cup after supper, also, and he would have blessed us as well. He would have said, Baruch Atah Adonai Eloheinu Melecha Olam Borei Peri Hagafen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The 
the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. If you notice, uh, the reason why we have a new camera system is because that thing just shut itself off. Did you hear that? I did hear yeah. Thank goodness. It's, it doesn't matter because I can, you know, do the sermon and everything without the communion. But people want to, even on YouTube, they this is where they take their communion each week. So we'll have it on the regular, I'm on the new system and not on the old. But uh, thanking uh, the Lord for the provision he's given us there. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for that. We thank you for everybody that's involved in helping out in this ministry and for uh, Sergio's tireless efforts in getting that done so that we have a system that will work and uh, that will uh, record these things for people who do stay at home and uh, attend online. We thank you for that. Lord, we love you and we praise you. We pray for each of the people that uh, is not here today, that are traveling or they're at home or whatever reason they're not here, that you would take care of them and uh, bless them in their souls and uh, that you would uh, also just bring each one of us back to our respective places of worship tomorrow, be it here or wherever else, that uh, you would uh, be glorified as we continue to praise you until the day that you call us home. Lord God, we love you and we thank you. What great things you have done for us through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so in his magnificent name we pray, amen. amen.